0: If you're visiting with us this morning, we'll be in Ephesians chapter 4 as we continue in our study of that book. The United Nations came into being in 1945 following the absolute devastation of World War II. Here is what the United Nations does in their own words. We have one central mission, the maintenance of international peace and security. The UN does this by working to prevent conflict, helping parties in conflict make peace, peacekeeping, and creating the conditions to allow peace to hold and flourish. The U.N. provides a real-time map that lists all ongoing armed conflicts in the world, broken down by major wars, wars, minor conflicts, and skirmishes. A little bit more close to home, our own Council of Foreign Relations provides a real-time global conflict tracker that breaks down all international conflicts with its impact on U.S. interests broken out as critical, significant, and limited. Clearly, these organizations have their work cut out for them. In our own nation, we are in an election year, and the ideological divisions run so deep between the major political parties that, that vitriolic Comments and vehement arguments are the norm, not the exception on virtually every single news show, virtually every single night. Even within the church, Mitchell Slater was telling me in between services that there was a church in Knoxville or South Knoxville about 70 or 80 years ago that divided over whether or not to first wash the left foot as opposed to the right foot, of people during foot-washing ceremonies. Literally, the marquee in front said left-foot Baptists or right-foot Baptists. Examples of conflict and the challenges of maintaining unity are legion. What I believe the Spirit wants to say to us as a church family this morning as we think through the reality of all this conflict and all the potential conflict, is what an opportunity. Brothers and sisters, as we come to our passage this morning in Ephesians 4, my prayer is that our hearts would leap at the opportunity that is before us. Our passage is Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6. And to make sure that we're kind of in the immediate flow of thought, I'll begin reading in verse one of chapter four. So hear the word of Almighty God. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience. Would you lead us now? We ask in the name of the Prince of Peace. Amen. Basically, against the backdrop of all of the international conflict in the world, against the backdrop of really a power-hungry world... We, as a church, have an opportunity to put the transforming power of the gospel on display through the power of Christian unity. We are a people, especially as a community church. We are a diverse group of people from from crazy different backgrounds, being transformed by the glorious gospel who are called to display an unbreakable peace. To a broken world. Now we focused last week on the reality that we as a church are called to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This week, as Paul presses his argument forward, we see that the unity that Paul challenges us to uphold is anchored in one identity. It relies on one hope is expressed as one confession and depends on one absolutely glorious God. Let's walk through each of these phrases that Paul uses here. Again, verse 4. There is one body and spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. So let's make sure we understand the flow of thought happening here at this point in the letter. The overarching theme of Ephesians is the Father's plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and on earth, Ephesians 1, 9 and 10. And this happens according to the mystery of his will. Then in chapter 3 and verse 6, he says, basically one example of of this unifying mission is that the Gentiles become fellow heirs, members of the same body, and here's the key phrase, partakers of the same promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. They have the exact same reality as the Jewish believers in Jesus. Now, this is, this is so good. Think about it with me. We know that the backdrop to this call to unity is two, two very different people groups being called together into one gloriously unified body. and Paul says they are partakers of the same promise through the gospel. Well, what is the New covenant promise that comes in Christ Jesus through the gospel? Ezekiel 36:27. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. That's very similar language to here in Ephesians 4. The Holy Spirit will help us walk in God's commands. So Paul's charge is to walk in a manner worthy of the calling as called out ones, walking according to our calling, filled with the spirit of God. That's the essence of what he's arguing which is why it's so important to understand that we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, as Paul says at the end of chapter 1. So, God first calls us out of this world in Christ, and then he fills us with his Spirit to display for the world the peace and unity of one body, filled with one spirit, identified with the one who is the Prince of Peace. The question is, how does that reality, how do these promises, how do these truths promote your eagerness? Because, because that's, that's the context. How does that promote your eagerness to maintain the unity of the spirit as a body this morning? Maybe the first thing that you think of in your own life is, uh, I don't have an issue right now at church. I've got issues in my own family or with my friends or at work. Both are really important because we are called to display a unity within the body that is put on display for the world, which includes every single one of those situations. So they're all absolutely relevant to Paul's charge here this morning. What if you need to have a difficult conversation with someone later today, or you know that you need to this week? Or maybe as you sit here this morning, you're exhausted because you've had lots of difficult conversations with people just over the last week. May I encourage you that before you start thinking about what needs to be said next, or what the steps are that need to be followed based on where you are right now, ask God to cause eagerness for peace and unity to rise up in your heart. Ask him to inflame your desire for unity because of the reality that is found in our one hope. Otherwise, you're going to have almost no inclination to do it. Or as soon as it gets tough, you're going to want to bow out. So ask God to work into your heart an eagerness led by his Spirit to want to even pursue unity. Now, it's not just that we are in Christ and that the Spirit is in us, as glorious as that is. I mean, we could just stop there, right? Christ is in us, we are in Christ, and we are filled with the Holy Spirit. That's good news, right? That's enough to establish everything that we need to move forward. But Paul fills in a lot more detail about the hope that we have. So Spirit, open our eyes. Open our eyes to see this hope. This is, this is how Art put it last week. We have been called before time in love. We've been chosen, adopted, forgiven, redeemed, united to Christ, and we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. We've been called from death to life and from wrath to mercy by grace. We who were once far off and without hope have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We've been called from hostility to peace. We have a new name, a new identity, and a new father. Our identity is as one, 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 one spirit-filled body in Christ. That is who we are. So, stack encouragement on top of encouragement. How do these realities not only impact your eagerness to maintain the unity of the Spirit, but how do these truths encourage you as you think about the area that is the most challenging for you as it relates to the pursuit of unity or as it relates to working through conflict? Because we need to pray not not merely for the eagerness or the desire to do it, but we are challenged to do it in the way that Paul says. That is, to pursue unity and work through conflict with all humility, with all gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another In love. Which one of those is your nemesis? Humility, gentleness, patience, pressing on. Think through this with me. Because what we're doing at this point at this moment is we're putting the indicatives underneath the imperatives so we can see the truths, the things that are true for us in Christ, rooted in the Father, Son, and the Spirit, which is what makes it possible for us to pursue these things with eagerness and with joy and with persistence. How does the willingness and the humility of Jesus and how does the power and pursuit of the Father and how does the love, joy, pace, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control of the Holy Spirit who lives within you because you are in Christ, how does that impact your ability to bear with one another in love? In other words, when you consider how God deals with you, upon what ground would we not do the same as it relates to others even in conflict how do these truths free us to do it the answer is that it frees us to die to ourselves so that christ who really lives within us might truly live through us but but you can almost feel the internal groan right great the answer is what do i have to die to But think about it with me. Everything that we need to die to is terrible. Think through it. In light of God's glory and grace, in other words, because of the gospel itself, self-centeredness and crass pride die. Harsh speech and hurtful words die. In light of God's glory and grace, rushed judgments and record-keeping of wrongs, die. Thoughtless actions and petty perspectives, die. In light of God's glory and grace, vengeful retribution and vain compliments, die. Sarcastic comments and subtly demeaning jokes, die. Vulgar language dies. Emotional manipulation dies, grudges die, impatience dies, uncontrolled anger dies, the idolatry of comfort dies, and unwillingness to talk Dies, procrastination dies, punitive silence dies, looks filled with contempt die, human jealousy dies, all of the sins that prohibit unity and fail to promote peace and have been nailed to the cross at Calvary and have died and are buried in the tomb with Jesus. This is the reality of what Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross of Calvary but let's get the full picture of baptism. In light of God's glory and grace, up out of the tomb, by resurrection power, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, loving pursuit of one another now lives. Patient persistence lives. Upbuilding speech lives. Greeting one another lives despite our circumstances. Gracious thoughts live. Giving the benefit of the doubt lives. Measured words live. Rejoicing in our brother or sister's blessing lives. Considering the interests of others above our own lives. Outdoing one another in showing honor lives, forgiveness, lives, repentance, lives, restoration, lives, trust, lives, flourishing relationships, live, lasting peace, lives, multicolored unity, lives, and by the grace of God, for the glory of God, sanctifying fellowship will live in the church among God's people forever and ever and ever and ever. This is just the basic reality of what God has accomplished for us in the gospel. This isn't PhD Christianity. This is Christianity 101. We die to ourselves so that Christ might live through us. It's how people of crazy different backgrounds being transformed by the gospel can display an unbreakable peace to a broken world. This is the power of Christian unity on full display. Now, this unity is found in one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. In other words, in one confession. So let me, let me read three verses consecutively. Romans 10.9, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Galatians 2.16 We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. In Acts 10.48, when Peter shared the gospel with those in the home of Cornelius, they were amazed because the Holy Spirit came upon them. And they began prophesying. And those who were with Peter, the Jews, it says the circumcised, absolutely praised God for the reality of what they were beholding. And Peter said, baptize them in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, my point is, there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. One faith, that is faith in Jesus Christ. And we are to be baptized into the name of Jesus Christ. So they're all essentially one and the same confession. The confession is both the entry point into the church and the foundation of our unity as one spirit-filled body of Christ. Seems easy, right? (laughs) But the human heart has a propensity to overcomplicate even the simplest of things. A good example of this is found in 1 Corinthians 1, where Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind in the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? He's absolutely disheartened by this reality. So Paul's call to them and to us is to one Lord and one faith and one baptism. It's a call to unity and away from the -the fill-in-the-blank tribes that creep into the church based on whatever differences we might overemphasize whatever differences we might minimize or whatever differences we might even covet, as the case may be. The power of Christian unity is formed around one Lord, our one faith, and our public desire to follow Christ expressed in baptism. But the glory of Christian unity is not found in uniformity. In fact, it's the very next verse where Paul will emph- emphasize the different gifts of varying measure given to each member of the body of Christ. So so think through the picture of what Paul is saying as he exhorts us to unity. It's like one spectacular tapestry woven together with, with individual pieces of thread. It's like one coat of, of many colors, like one multi-faceted diamond, like one sunset with, with, with an array of breathtaking hues, like a, like a building made of living stones with, with just one cornerstone, like one family of, of different shapes and sizes and interests and, and personalities, like one body with many members, each one unified in the whole, but each one also unique in their own way. They all contribute to the functioning and the flourishing of God's one and only church. This is exactly the concept that Paul is going to develop over the rest of the chapter as he goes back and forth between sameness unity and difference. The power of our witness to the world is grounded in the brilliance of God-given diversity on display in our stunningly clear call to unity. One of the, the greatest challenges in leadership within the church is, is fortifying our stability as one body anchored in a unified confession without, without squelching the diversity of giftings of men and of women, of older saints and of very young ones, of prayer warriors, of leaders, of servants, of evangelists, of teachers, of of new idea folks, of the administratively gifted, of doctrine lovers, of outreach lovers, of hymn lovers and new song lovers, of structure lovers and spontaneity lovers, and the list goes on and on and on and on. I've long said to those in our membership class that our glory or our undoing as a church, may very well be the theological diversity of our people as we fight to be unified around one glorious gospel. Filled with the Spirit of God, seeing differing perspectives rightly emphasized, tethered to the gospel of God is about the most beautiful picture you could imagine. And we have that opportunity. So much wisdom must be applied to rightly emphasizing the right things. And frankly, I've devoted my entire life to this task. Learn how to rightly emphasize the right things so that we would have convictional resolve as a people. And yet there would be tremendous freedom and tremendous flourishing among us as a people so pray for us pray for us as a leadership and pray for us as a body because Satan would love to destroy the beauty of what God is building here at River Oaks all of these things are dependent upon one God and father of all who is over all And through all and in all. I think this acclamation of God by Paul is designed to be kind of the final mic drop moment for him, arguing for unity in the midst of diversity. I think it is first best understood as a massive statement emphasizing. the the cosmic nature of everything that Paul has been arguing since back in chapter 1. That all things are going to be united in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth, as a plan for the fullness of time. So basically his argument goes like this. If there is only one God who is the Father of all, who has authority over all, And who is ultimately working through and in all, then it is hard to exclude or express prejudice in any form against anyone based on any perceived differences between us that are not grounded in the truth of God's word. I'm not talking about counterfeit peace, I'm not talking about a veneer of unity. I'm not talking about peace faking. I'm not talking about unity for unity's sake. It is not unity at all costs. Frankly, there are doctrines that are worth dividing over. And there are doctrines worth dying for, for that matter. But more narrowly, within the exhortation that Paul is giving to the church, if we as members of Christ's body all have the one true God for our Father, then however different we may be, let's cut close to the heart, no matter how difficult we may be, the ultimate reason we can be unified is because we have been adopted into one Massive spiritual family in Christ. And we now have God. That is the God revealed in about a million words in this book. We have this God for our Father. From Rahab and Ruth in the Old Testament to to people like Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee and Cornelius, who was a centurion in the New Testament, God has always been grafting people from different backgrounds into his one spiritual family. In no other gathering of people in the world is the potential for more diversity to be displayed in unity than in the church of the one true God who adopts us into his family through our confession of his son. The power of our unity as believers is anchored in one identity. It relies on one hope. It's expressed as one confession and depends on one God. Despite this call to unity, because of our differences and our imperfections, the truth of the matter is, this is a very difficult calling. Therefore, much grace must be extended to one another to this end. As they so often do, the words of Charles Spurgeon seem fitting. Give yourself to the church. You that are members of the church have not found it perfect. And I hope that you feel almost glad that you have not. If I had never joined a church till I had found one that was perfect, I would never have joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it, for it would have not been a perfect church after I had become a member of it. Still, imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. Because Jesus is our living hope, it is possible It is is actually possible for people from crazy different backgrounds who are actually being transformed by the gospel, dying to ourselves and living for Christ and Christ living through us. It is possible that we can display an unbreakable union as the body of Christ to a broken world. The world needs much more than the U.N., The world needs much, much more than peace councils. The world needs something far more powerful than a global military force to bring about peace and to sustain peace. The world needs the transforming power of the gospel. It is the only hope for peace. So our prayer then is, as a church... That as we are transformed by the gospel, as we learn to serve one another, as we die to ourselves, and to live for Christ, that even the most hardened of the world will sooner or later begin to yearn for something different than they have known. For the type of unity, the type of diversity, the type of patience, the type of compassion, the type of convictional resolve, the type of joy and the type of love that they see actually on display in the church of the one true God. What an opportunity. Let's seize it together. Would you pray with me? Father, we, we would have no hope uh, of, even <laughs> of even believing that peace could flourish in our own hearts apart from Jesus, let alone in our relationships or in a community the size of the church or in the world and in all of creation for that matter. We don't know how to tame our own sin. And so we, right out of the gate, are completely dependent upon you. So it is with awe and with anticipation and joy that we think about the reality that you are uniting all things in Christ forever. That is a hope that sustains us. That is a hope that we look forward to. Now, would you, would you cause us to trust in the reality of what you have provided for us in Christ, who is our living hope, so that we might be eager, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and willing, willing to do the hard work that it requires. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.